This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast where politics is eternally coming home. I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. Naomi Smith is Chief Exec of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hi. Uh, Dominic Raab's currently in Brazil, better there than here, trying to thrash out a trade deal, and Liz Truss is in the US, better there than here, but has admitted <laughs> that a deal with Washington probably won't happen until 2023. How's buccaneering global Britain faring this week? Uh, well, on the trade front, probably very little of significance, really, since the Australia deal was announced last month, uh, which at the time, you know, we mentioned paves the way for lower standards in the UK, cheap meats on British supermarket shelves and in the food that gets served up in hospitals and care homes and schools. Considering the reports that the US trade talks have stalled, I think we can only assume trust is in the state to, I don't know, like, pick up on tips from the Republican Party on, you know, how the new elections bill that's just been published should pave the way for, you know, a major assault on democratic rights and will further diminish Britain's global standing. I mean, I think the point is that many Commonwealth countries and former colonies score far better on political integrity and standards in public life than we do now. And this elections bill that's been published combined with the policing bill has now gone through the Commons seeks to make things like uh, the noisy pro-democracy protests we saw in Hong Kong illegal in the UK, right? And it was it was those very noisy protests that alerted us to their plight in the first place and led to the Home Office offering asylum visas to Hong Kongers. So I think Global Britain kind of probably remains global joke at the moment, and that's before we've even started on government racism and international aid cuts, which may or may not be linked. On your point about Rob being in Brazil, there's been very little reported on that. Um, I assume he would probably see, he was presumably there to meet the misogynist, rainforest destroyer, hunter, admirer, wannabe dictator, President Bolsonaro. Um, uh, and maybe they're worried about the optics, but it was reported today that the Brazilian president has now been hospitalized because he's had hiccups for 10 days. Um, so <laughs> probably we hope he makes a full recovery and that his opponent Lula beats him in the election next year. We also have commentator Alex Andre. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Um, you're fuming about this vote to abandon the 0.7% of GDP foreign aid target. Uh, this, the Tory rebellion was not as sizable as hoped. Uh, tell us what happened. They basically won the vote to ignore the uh, foreign aid target that had been written into law, 0.7%. Johnson stood up in the House to remind people that in these difficult times, every pound we spend in foreign aid is borrowed, which begs a lot of questions. So first of all, that is fiscally literate. For a sovereign currency, extra money is created, and the only limit is inflation. Read the book, any book. Second, it is a constitutional horror because the statute obligating us to the 0.7% target is still there. It's not been repealed. It's not been amended in any way or changed. The government has simply given itself permission to ignore the law by ministerial motion, voted for only in the Commons. So as if the bicameral checks and balances in our democratic system are sort of optional extra. The third thing is that if you're going to pretend to be fiscally conservative, then I have a right to ask... What about the billions paid to newly created maids companies for unusable PPE? 
What about contracts for donors and jobs for mistresses and failed track and trace and apps that were scrapped and Nightingale hospitals that never saw a patient or Trident or HS2 or tunnels to Ireland or roundabouts under the Isle of Man and garden bridges and funiculars that nobody uses and airport expansions that take 40 years and abandoned nuclear plants and bribes to car manufacturers and a royal yacht, you know, that nobody wants. What about the trillion that we guarantee to save the banks? So where does all that dosh come from? Is it only when it comes to giving nurses a pay rise and babies a malaria vaccine that money becomes a scarce resource? Uh, And so what happened to the Tory rebellion? Nothing. It fizzled out. There are some rumours going around that a few of them were offered basically jobs in the reshuffle to go away. It's irrelevant anyway. This should not rely on on the good conscience of a few backbenchers. We should be united in our purpose. It is... The foreign aid target is expressed as a percentage for a reason, so that if the economy is doing badly, it contracts naturally. That's mm. why it's a percentage. So to to undo that means that we're questioning our level of commitment. We're saying that in a crisis, it's okay to be less committed to the rest of the world. In a crisis is when the rest of the world needs you most. It's easy to do the right thing when it's easy to do the right thing. Character is when you do the right thing and it's difficult. And this country has very little character at the moment. And Roz Taylor is the editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello. Fascinating Epsos Mori poll last week asked the public what COVID measures should stay in place even after the virus is under control, or it seems even if it was completely eliminated. 40% wanted mandatory face masks, 46% wanted vaccine passports for foreign travel. But the real jaw-dropper was the news that 26% wanted nightclubs and casinos closed forever. (laughs) And 19% wanted an eternal 10am curfew. Like what in a police state? Are you surprised that millions of Oliver Cromwells walk among us? Not entirely, actually. Though I, I confess I did go out for a short walk just after 10pm that night, just just to piss off 90% of my neighbours, um, because I could. No, it, it, it's, 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 very, it's very depressing in a way, but it's, it's proof of how much things can change and how quickly normal can become new normal in, in in i mean two years ago the idea of that we would could ever live under a lockdown was pretty much unthinkable by itself now many people are, are quite happy to see these particular places i mean casinos casinos you know i could take or leave but again you know it's not about me if people want to go and go and waste money that should be up to them nightclubs are almost a different proposition because it's it's like a it's almost like an elemental attack on mm. people who want to get together and listen to music and that feels very scary but you know th- for a lot of people who haven't been near a nightclub for maybe 40 50 years this might feel quite a desirable outcome and it's sad but it's testament as well i think to the kind of lack of generational divides and the lack of empathy that some people have. I feel like perhaps people like us have made a devil's bargain with the authoritarian instincts of the British (laughs) public because when it comes to sort of lockdown, we're delighted that the kind of the the lockdown sceptics and COVID deniers can't make any headway. We're we're delighted when people are going, well, actually, uh, we're going to continue to wear face masks on public transport. Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, that's great. And then, yeah, also... Close the clubs <laughs> forever, forever. <laughs> and it's just like it's just like whoa, 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 hang on there. This week, it's bad news for the shock troops of the war on woke as Euro twenty twenty opens up an unprecedented debate on racism with most of the public on the side of the players, not Pretty Patel. Could this be a watershed moment? Plus, on the eve of Sadia's big, if not now, when gamble, what exactly does personal responsibility around COVID mean? Does it mean perhaps sticking a red flare up your naked bum? And uh, how many deaths will be the acceptable price for a taste of normality? And in our extra bit for Petrin backers, why are we drowning in nostalgia? And what do we choose to forget when we look back on golden years? Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Support for faithful listeners like you has helped us keep going and growing for four years now. And we're always grateful to new backers. Search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast to find out more about getting the show early and other tasty benefits. You'll be helping to keep us in shape for the great battles ahead. And you can also help us for zero pence by leaving us a review on iTunes. Remember that when it comes to stars, five is the luckiest number. (laughs) 
First this week, it's a bad week for people who want politics out of football or football out of politics. England's defeat in Sunday's Euro 2020 final saw scenes of violence on the streets of England and racist abuse online against the three players who failed to score in the penalty shootout. But the response from the wider public has been heartening, with people turning a vandalised Marcus Rashford mural into a tribute to the player and to the anti-racist movement. As for the players themselves, on Monday, England defender Tyrone Mings had a message for Pretty Patel, tweeting, You don't get to stoke the fire at the beginning of the tournament by labelling our anti-racism message as gesture politics and then pretend to be disgusted when the very thing we're campaigning against happens. Alex, there's been sort of support for Mings from uh, former Veterans Minister Johnny Mercer, who said he was very uncomfortable with the position we Conservatives are needlessly forcing ourselves into, while Brexit tough nut Steve Baker, who is not a friend of the pod, told fellow MPs on the uh, something I didn't know existed, Conservatives Against Racism, comma, for Equality Group, um, <laughs> that this might be a decisive moment for our party. Is this the moment when the culture war becomes a Tory civil war? Yes and no. I think the problem is that despite all the ridiculing of metropolitan elites and liberal sensibilities and wokeness, I think most Tory MPs will share them because they come from age and education and travelling and living in a cosmopolitan city from contact with other tribes from thinking time. So I think like with Trump, many of them will have thought that they could ride the culture wars tiger to power, but then go no further. So use it to get into uh, power, but then govern like decent chaps. And it's not turning out that way. And I think a lot of them are now realizing what moderate conservatives that supported Trump did that, you know, you ride that tiger, even if you're done with it, it might not be done with you. Well, there's some absolute headbangers on the Tory backbenches. Um, on this issue, Andrew Rosendell, Lee Anderson, Natalie Elphick. I mean, there's many, many. I mean, yeah, Rosendell was keeping a tally of scores in, the, in Euro 2020 based on EU and non-EU countries. And then he turns around and goes, oh, keep politics out of football. He was literally yeah. tweeting well, that Lee Anderson wouldn't watch non-EU countries out. are winning at the moment. I'm amazed Andrew Rosendell wasn't keeping a tally of who wasn't yet wearing a poppy. Well, you could build a squad of real nutters on the Tory back benches. Do you think that they've messed up Johnson's dog whistle strategy? and cause a backlash by just making it too obvious so that actually they're making some of their fellow Tories deeply uncomfortable because they're not only uh, unpleasant, but in the case of someone like Lee Anderson, they, they've made themselves risible. I, I think you're right. I mean, the reason it's called a dog whistle is that it's only audible to a sort of subsection of people. If you use a megaphone, then everyone can sort of hear it. Are they hoping that there's enough closet racists up and down the country in the constituencies they need to carry them to power? It's an unnecessary risk. If you can do it subtly and sort of indicate to that subsegment that we know what you want mm. without making everyone else feel like they need to have a shower after voting for you, that's the line you want to walk. And a lot of them are not walking that line at the moment. Well, it seems like a massive miscalculation on the part of Patel and Johnson when, at the beginning of the tournament, they refused to condemn fans who booed taking the knee. By getting to the final, the, the England team have sort of made fools of their mm. critics. You know, mm. no, nothing succeeds like success. Do you think that that was that they expected a different outcome? You know, that they just they they couldn't think themselves forward to the idea of England in the final and how it would appear at that stage to take that position on taking the knee. I think it's habit. I, and I think they've come a cropper a few times on this. I think they're used to being in a position of power. So they're used to having the trappings of credibility, better access to the media, a more amusing figurehead, which means that they can waft away a lot of the attacks as humorless lefties. Nobody listens to them anyway. They enjoy none of those advantages against someone like Marcus Rashford. Hmm. He can literally 
tweet his own narrative to more people than read the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Express and the Telegraph put together. And so they have a problem if they try to waft that away because suddenly they find that their penetrability, as it were, is much less than these stars. Uh, Naomi, The Sun uh, put the three players who missed their penalties on the front page with a, an anti-racist message. I think it said the headline is, We've Got Your Back. Now, you could, if you wanted to be pedantic, accuse <laughs> The Sun of hypocrisy on this issue. <laughs> um, but when even that paper is is clearly choosing the progressive side, is does that mean that the, the, the national debate is effectively won? And this is not an issue that sort of divides the country. It divides a large majority from a small minority. I don't know on whether you know we can we can sort of say that the national debate is totally won. What I think we can extrapolate from it is that the sun can spot danger better than our government, <laughs> um, which is quite unsettling considering who is in charge of our pandemic response and economy and all the rest of it. Um, so the Sun and indeed Steve Baker um, have the political foresight to see that you don't set yourself against the national team who just made it into the final um, and had the same three players missed penalties in the uh, a last 16 match. I think we may well have woken up to the same three pictures, but with enemies of the people back on the front page or something awful. Um, similarly, I think the home section... <laughs> I don't imagine. Even the sun, I don't think we go for enemies of the people. <laughs> similarly, um, I think the home secretary was, was probably betting that the team wouldn't do so well and so could blame their failure on their wokeness, a bit like you know, Natalie Elphick. So how annoying for them both that the England side were actually really, really good. Racial slurs, of course, continue to be taboo, at least for now. But like the horrible abuse after the game shows that it is just sort of bubbling away under the surface for some people. And unfortunately, some of our most popular publications who, you know, will be back to deploying racist dog whistles before Gareth Southgate gets his knighthood are probably going to, you know, be back with that kind of trope in no time at all. Well, yeah, I, 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 I do wonder about that because I think one of the mistakes that the left often makes about Rupert Murdoch is that they think that, that Murdoch basically decides, you know, who's going to be in power. Whereas I've always felt that what he does is he backs the person who is likely to be in power, yeah. which is why he sort of backed yeah. Tony Blair. It's not like he picked... Tony Blair, and what that's what this 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 cover seems to uh, this front page suggests to me is it's not that they've suddenly become super anti-racist. It's just they've gone. This is where the country is. Mm. Yeah, the Independent's Rupert Hawksley uh, wrote a piece which was despairing almost, said the online racist abuse of Rashford, Saka and Sancho was the reality of England, thuggish and intolerant. Uh, that's me paraphrasing. Um, but hope, not hate identified just a couple of thousand racist messages after the final, many of which seem to have come from outside the UK. In decrying this stuff, is there a danger of amplifying the racism of a small minority and making it seem like this is the the dark heart of England and perhaps therefore undermining uh, the positivity of what of what's happened around this team? Well, it was clearly a minority of fans that were booing other national anthems and booing players taking the knee. You know, it, it, it is not the, the majority of the country that are racist. So I understand the argument. And looking at Trump and at Brexit, both of these were arguably the result of platforming people with particularly poisonous views, right? So I take my lead from the people who are the targets of this abuse, the England players themselves took the knee to highlight that racism continues to be a blight on our country and needs to be called out. And this time it was done in the correct way, held up as universally despised and not given a slot on question time to discuss the merits of being a racist. So is the government, the government now seems to be attempting to pin the blame on social media companies and not perhaps their own failure to set an example because, of race, <laughs> because racism... Uh, appears on social media, therefore call in, call in the people from Facebook and have a go at them. <laughs> yeah, look, they are absolutely uh, trying to pin the blame on the social media companies um, and it should be in as well as rather than an instead of. Um, and the desperation in the tactic is just so transparent, you can smell it. 
it, it just hasn't been enough to steal focus from the amazing tweet from Tyrone Mings, which just cut to the heart of the issue uh, and which was targeted, obviously, very directly at the Home Secretary, Priti Patel. Social media companies do need to do a lot more to tackle online abuse. And, you know, no one's denying that, but it's just not the central charge being leveled at the government at the moment. If the social media companies can put a warning on literally every post that has anything vaguely to do with COVID, then of course they can do it for racism. Uh, I reported a bunch of comments on a news story about a violent assault this week because they were things like, or was it a usual suspect followed by a monkey emoji? And the report back from Facebook to me was that it didn't believe any of these comments had broken Facebook's rules, right? But we mustn't let Johnson off the hook on this. The fish rots from the head. He has never advocated the booing of players taking the knee, but he has never condemned it either. Hmm. But what he has done is referred to black Africans as pickaninnies. He has referred to women wearing the niqab as letterboxes. He has said that Malaysian women only go to university to find a husband. And these are racist statements made openly and brazenly and without apology by the man who is in charge of the country. So he has emboldened people like Priti Patel to bat for the racists who boo taking the knee, emboldened Dominic Raab for likening the gesture to a Game of Thrones-esque subjugation. And of course, all the estate agents and others who have been found guilty of racial slurs and assaults over the past few weeks. So yes, the social media companies need to do more. But frankly, we mustn't let that become the distraction in letting Johnson off the hook for his enormous role in legitimizing that minority of voices in feeling that it is safe to be racist. And, uh, and hashtag also, not all the state agents. And, and, all, yes. and also, um, we have to remember that without those same social media companies, Tyrone Mings wouldn't mm. have been able to tweet yeah. the Home Office uh, Secretary. Or Marcus Rashford to do, to do oh, any of the things exactly. he did. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know... The the medium is the medium and the content is the content. I, I would say, I mean, the Instagram and Facebook playing dumb about certain emojis. It's like, I don't, I don't know if there was a huge need out there for, for, for monkey banana emojis, but, but if they are allow if they exist, I think to, to, to sort of act as if that they cannot be used in a racist way, I mm. found actually quite stunning. Yeah. <laughs> that, that this sort of like uh, it, um, fake naivety. Um, Ros, there was a fierce FT leader uh, which said, with the Johnson government unable or unwilling to give a clear lead on racism, it has been left to the team manager to articulate the role the England team can play as a symbol of national unity. Um, you know, today I saw just a joke kind of um, going around around political journalists, you know, which, how would you fill the cabinet with the English England players? <laughs> um, because there is such a sort of leadership void, it's a moral void, um, in politics, certainly in the government benches, there's a lot of weight being put, political weight being put on football by liberals and the left. Do you think that it can bear that weight? I worry a bit that it can't. I mean, politics obviously shouldn't be the only place where you find leadership. But at the moment, politics is somewhere we are where we are very much not finding leadership. And the instinct, particularly on the left, and an understandable instinct, is to look for it in people like Gareth Southgate and, you know, to carry on trying to reclaim football from the nationalist tendencies, more than tendencies, which it has shown in the past, and which is, which is an ongoing project, let's face it. It's, we, know, we know from the 2012 Olympics that sport can be very powerful for the left. It's something that somebody people always remember the NHS in the Olympics that extraordinary uh, you know the, the the way that that was incorporated into sport and it people who had not been expecting to feel proud of their country on the night of the Olympics opening ceremony suddenly felt yeah I feel quite proud of my country mm. and the temptation to kind of try and to try and apply our values to to this game I think is is very strong and it's completely understandable and we see that in you know, rightly praise for people taking the knee. The problem is that we would need to realise the difference between what is symbolic action and what is practical action. Mm. And we must make sure that what we're doing is not just performative. Because while taking the knee is a very powerful gesture, if you've got people 
outside, just outside the stadium, inside the stadium, behaving in a racist way and continuing to do so, then is it, A, is it working? B, you know, is, is it is it getting through to, uh, to people? Is it getting through to the people who need to hear? Because it's a trap for the left sometimes when we end up talking to each other and reinforcing what we enjoy hearing rather than... Uh, it, it happens as well when we feel powerless. We have no agency, so we say... You know, we want to we want our values to be on show here, but is it just on show, or is it actually changing anything? I, I, yes, but if if people want to express that, I don't I don't know whether we should see that as in the same way that we would see something like an you know a, an election campaign. Because I, I wonder even the idea that whether anti racism should be considered a political position. Because if you personally face discrimination and abuse, and this is what some of these players have, have, have just experienced again, then that's part of your life. It's not like uh, Raheem Sterling wearing like hands-off Venezuela armband or even being involved in a, in a sort of campaign where you might just go, well, you need to sort of reach the... You can't just preach the converted, you need to reach other people. Like, yeah, you know, should it be judged in that way? Does the existence of some racists mean that the gest- an anti-racist gesture has failed? Or is only performative? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But it, it, this actually goes to the to a lot of very, very, very vivid debates at the moment about racism. Because ra- anti-racism, I don't think, is a political position. It's a value that informs your politics. Hmm. Because when you're thinking about politics, you're thinking about how what is the system that will help me to achieve and will help me to change the things that I want to change about this country, the things that I want to do. So it play. It, it's clearly... Uh, uh, it plays into that and it's really important but it gets to the heart of these things because the question here is is racism systemic is it embedded in our culture if you go you can go all the way back to the mcpherson report to find this contrast between the idea that racism is embedded is institutionalized uh is systemic in the modern term or whether it's just some individuals who are racist and Mm. who are not necessarily powerful in our culture and are bad apples is it was I think the the term, and then how much of an example setting, how much of example setting, and how much can policy do to change that? And that's the really difficult question. How much by the example that a politician sets or doesn't set in the case of Priti Patel, for example? <laughs> how much in terms of policy? For you know, John, Johnson has just said that he wants to ban people who, uh, uh, you know, racist rape people who are racist on social media from football matches. How much can you do? What will you do? Those are the really difficult questions, and I think those are the questions that we need to tackle urgently and not just seek some comfort and solace in the gestures. Which is not to say that I oppose the gestures. I mm. don't. Maybe the maybe the power of the performative gesture is to trigger the racist, and I think that's quite powerful, actually, to say, "Show yourself, boo, I dare you." Do you think I, I, I um, uh, for my sins, read a, a Barry Weiss interview with Mumford banjo outcast Winston oh God, Marshall? I read that too. Yeah, and it's terrible. Um, because she's a terrible uh, interviewer and person. But one interesting thing that he pointed out was that before Brexit and Trump, basically people very rarely asked Mumford and Sons uh, about politics. It wasn't, you know, it it happened sometimes and it wasn't the norm. And I certainly noticed it as a, you know, music journalist sometimes that that became, sometimes you pick up an issue of a music magazine and almost everybody was talking about Brexit and Trump. And I sort of see that in sport now, that that is, uh, if you're if you're a black athlete, mm. Lewis Hamilton recently becoming much more outspoken and yeah. an activist. Um, we've seen that in, in the States as well, since the whole, you know, that, that taking the knee became a gesture. So has the sort of terrain of celebrity changed so much now that the idea of, I think, Andrew Rosendale doing the old uh, stick to stick to football, keep out of politics. Is that essentially kind of, is that essentially gone now? And that if you are an artist, if you are an actor, if you're a musician, if you're a sports person, then there is a, not necessarily a demand, but certainly a kind of, you know, is an expectation that if you do have political views, then you're going to express them. And that is just the new normal. I don't know that there's anything to stop Winston Marshall from saying, 
I don't think I know enough about this to feel strongly either way. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't read that interview and think less of a musician. I, I think the truth is that people like him are flattered that we want to know their view and then shocked if we find their view abhorrent. But you're right in that it has increased. But I think that has to do with polarization. Because I think it was always like that in the States, you see, where debate has always been more polarized. I don't know that there are many actors or musicians in the States that are not fairly openly either Democrat or Republican, for instance. I don't think that's. I don't think that used to be the case at all. I, I, think, I think many successful uh, uh, black celebrities in the States and over here chose not to... No. Decided they would rather okay. not people of color, talk about though. talk about race. Many musicians, if you look up, say you know, I'm with Taylor Swift, chose not to talk about politics, but then had to. So I'm wondering if we are in a in a in a, there were always political celebrities, but are we now in a sort of a phase where you basically it is it is ridiculous to say stick to music, stick to football because that and there has been a tipping point. I think you have to also see them as a commercial product because they are, okay? And in line with that, you have to understand that they have agents and personal managers in their ear saying, don't say anything about politics up until a certain point. And then when a few of them stick their head above the parapet and actually you find out that politics can be quite good for your career, Mm. maybe you have a series of agents and personal managers telling them, yeah, I, I like your position on this. I think you should be shouting it from the rooftops. So I, I don't think it has to do with the fact that people of colour in the arts didn't want to express an opinion before. I think that we've now created the space right, yes, for yes. them to do it. But yes. It was always there, but probably shushed by someone very worried that they were going to ruin their career. Absolutely. That's what I mean. It's a cultural yeah, change yeah, rather yeah. than suddenly the sort of moral awakening. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Next up, the final phase of reopening in England starts this coming Monday, July the 19th. Freedom Day! But cases now stand at over 40,000 a day, increasing so fast that I had to rewrite that figure in the script three times in two days. Warnings that we could be back to 200 deaths a day this summer. The WHO has urged all countries to move carefully. But as Sajid Javid says on the cover of Private Eye, they think it's all over. Let's pretend it is. <laughs> That's very good. Naomi, what will you be doing differently for Monday? Well, I mean, God knows what the case rate's going to be by Monday, Dorian. So I suppose what I'm going to be doing differently is being even more cautious and probably going back towards some of the behaviours that I had during lockdown. I'm certainly going to keep wearing masks as I walk around the office or travel on transport or if I'm you know in the vicinity of people I know to be very vulnerable uh, I'm going to keep using hand sanitizer and taking regular lateral flow tests and trying wherever possible to meet people outside because our case rate is currently horrific and plenty of people who have had COVID and uh, or have been double jabbed are testing positive for Delta and feeling pretty unwell and you know uh, we have 40,000 mm. cases a day as we record but I think it was something like 49 deaths today as well which is you know significant increase and it's just too early to tell if any of these people are going to be suffering long COVID after this particular infection as we saw with the with the previous variants. I'm probably not going to book a foreign holiday anytime soon as much as I am absolutely gagging for a break and sitting on a beach and drinking cocktails and reading books. Uh, I'm going to have to make do with staycationing on that one because we've created the perfect conditions for a vaccine resistant strain, high vax rates combined with high case rates. Uh, And if we do grow one, Mm. we all promise that we will call it the Johnson strain. Alex, what's Greek for Johnson? (laughs) What's Greek for Johnson? 
Johnson. Yeah. Just like Johnson in a Greek, in a very heavy Greek accent. Johnson. There we go. How do you expect um, other people to behave? Because you know, polling shows majorities in favour of keeping masks on in, in shops and public transport. But groupthink is powerful. We do tend to move with the crowd, and you know, you take your signals from those around you. I expect some people to behave like complete idiots because you have to assume that you're only as safe as the most, you know, wankerish person around you. Let's be frank. In the last week, I've had cab drivers urge me to remove my mask. Literally, yeah. Black cab drivers saying, you don't have to wear your mask in my cab. And I got in with my mask. And then them saying, oh, but you don't have to. You're literally saying, take it off. Uh, And obviously, I've, well, you know, that was a very, very strong inference that that's what they wanted me to do they wanted to be able to see my face I had a maskless hairdresser announce that she'd refused the vaccine and so I left um so I think most people will still be wary and careful yes you're right polling suggests that most people are in favor of of you know continuing with some of the restrictions but many of course will just take the government's signal as gospel that it is safe to go back to normal and the data shows it simply isn't do you get the vibe from Freedom Day uh, that of uh, that good old Brexit impatience? Is this basically sort of get COVID done? It's like we just we we want a date and we're just we're fed up of mucking about. Only instead of kind of annoying MPs, you have <laughs> the Delta variant. <laughs> probably, um, I think the reality is that that the working phrase is probably get COVID spread rather than get COVID done um, because the government strategy seems to be herd immunity via a mixture of vaccine and infections in the hope that hospitalizations and deaths somehow, you know, remain low, but with little to no thought of the impact of long COVID on at least one in 10 people who get infected. All the reports indicate that the prime minister would need the Labour Party if he were to extend the restrictions again. You know, the prime minister is doing something that he knows is wrong and that will cause problems. Um, We saw it with Brexit, particularly on the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol, you know, that do and say anything that's the most politically expedient thing to do and to hell with the consequences. Um, I sometimes get angry at my past self for procrastinating on a piece of work or having one too many the night before. But future Boris, I think, can blame his past self for massive economic and, and human carnage, which I think is a bit worse than a hangover. But as a friend of the podcast, um, Lizzie Price, said on Twitter today... If we are done with restrictions, masks, ventilation, protection, worrying about deaths, long COVID and ruined lives, surely it's time for the public inquiry. Roz, what will you be doing for Monday? Much the same as I'm, uh, as I'm doing now, to be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to stop wearing masks indoors. Um, I don't wear masks outdoors because most of the evidence shows there's not much point in doing so unless you're in a very crowded situation. Mm. I will continue wearing it all the places I normally do indoors um, as mandated. I, I've got, I think I've booked to go to a gig next week. I'm kind of, um, which which previously would have been socially distanced, but because it's on the 20th now, I guess won't be. So mm. I'm kind of thinking, should I do that? Or is that basically going to put me in a situation where if I get COVID and then the kids have to isolate, that ruins another 10 days of their summer and there's play schemes and stuff and so it's it, I'm very I'm kind of it's almost more about other people what if I if if I get it how is this massively going to inconvenience someone else's life and of course that's the problem that you have with with the self-isolation requirement mm. I mean Amy mentioned long COVID there um, our friend Christina Pager wrote a very good piece pointing out problems with the unlocking one was a sort of long COVID another was allowing future mutations to spread and this is going to happen even with vaccinations so Is the government being deliberately, I mean, are they thinking about this behind closed doors and being deliberately dishonest to the public? Or is it literally like only deaths matter and and any other consequences don't figure into their calculations? I mean, it's fair to say that Sajid Javid in particular has been, you know, open saying there could be 100,000, 200,000 infections a day before too long. And he's right about that. So in a sense, I think they have embraced this. I think as Naomi was saying, this is partly down to a Johnson personality and populist personality tray, where you know that you want to sell things to the public that are simple. 
And this, of course, mm. is why we had mm. such a hard Brexit, mm. ultimately, because there was no possibility of compromise and Brexit had to mean Brexit. And in the end, Brexit could not mean staying in the single market or doing anything sensible. It had to mean the hardest possible Brexit. It had to mean clean break. And that exactly the same impulse, I think, has been going through Johnson's mind with Freedom Day. And he cannot, he finds it hard to conceive of, you know, standing up and saying, well, you're pretty free, but just carry on doing this because that's not the Johnson personality. Because that, and that's what's so, so ridiculous, I suppose, is that, is that the, even, even at my most sort of libertarian, it just seems to me that the masks, the keeping masks is a no brainer. Yeah. Because it yeah. doesn't, you know, even if you removed social distancing, it's just like, well, the masks are so easy. They yeah. don't affect nightclubs or how many people you mm. can fit into a theatre. There is literally no reason, apart from this obsession with a clean gesture, I know. that you wouldn't have masks. I know. And, you know, Israel, for example, which got very, 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 very low COVID and then a Delta variant got in and despite them being the fastest country to vaccinate in mm. the world, very quickly went back to masks because it makes sense. It absolutely does. The problem, of course, as well, is that the government does not want to mandate vaccines either because that would not be libertarian. So where, whereas in France right now, you're seeing a situation where Emmanuel Macron has basically said, if you don't get vaccinated by August, we will not let you get on a long distance train. We won't let you go to a cafe, even outside. We won't let you go to a supermarket if you don't get vaccinated. And so basically you need to get vaccinated. And as a consequence, million, you know, 1.7 million of people probably signed up to get vaccinated. And that, oh really? Yeah, because obviously the you're hearing already about you know the protesters, probably some of the yeah they're loud. the yellow vest people will be back, but it it, it but it's really worked. Yeah, so it's far. really worked, and I mean the French state is strong. French whinge traditionally a lot about this kind of imposition. They will say how much they hate it, then they will do it. That's always been the French the mm. French way, and Johnson, of course because of his libertarian instincts, is reluctant to do that. And I'm wondering if he will, in the end, have to introduce a kind of vaccine passport to get the higher coverage that he wants. But the most immediate question, of course, is whether he's going to allow teenagers to be vaccinated. That's a, one that he they've been sitting on the fence about. It's going to be interesting seeing what kind of U-turns there are later. Dutch PM Mark Rutte has reversed and actually apologised for his unlocking after just two weeks. So it's a mass abuse of the test for entry system. There was a 600% rise in cases, got to the highest level in all of 2021, a return to the red list for travel. Um, somebody called this the ghost of the ghost of Britain yet to come. Do you think that's where we'll end up, except obviously without an apology? Uh, could Could be. It's possible. I think nightclubs is a particularly difficult one. Mm. Nightclubs, according to the data in, in, in the Netherlands that I've seen, vast numbers of cases were linked to nightclubs. Because if you think about it, unmasked people dancing around, shouting in closed space, it's just breeding ground for COVID. And Drunk and high. Drunk and high, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, obviously, although I do not want to close nightclubs forever, uh, I can say, <laughs> I think it would be, uh, it is stupid to open them now. Um, so a middle ground between July 19th and forever. Yeah, there's a, there's a middle <laughs> ground. A centrist position. And we've got, we've got to do that because, you know, is it, is it fundamentally it comes down to things like nightclubs versus schools. Which do you value more? Well, of course you oh, value... Oh, nightclubs. <laughs> well, obviously. Not, not you, Alex. <laughs> Yes, about your bloody kids. Uh, <laughs> well, I think we can agree as a society that education, yes, yes. you know, no, does... I agree. I agree as a does, society. Yeah, as a society, we have to put eight million kids yeah. before you wanting to yeah, go yeah, to a nightclub. Yeah, yeah. I'm but, sorry. But you... Personally, Alex. Me personally. Um, personally, as a, as a sociopath, will you be hitting the clubs next weekend? I won't. Um... um I mean, it'd be great if you could have sort of provincial Monday evening nightclubs where there's basically only four people and loads of smoke so you can dance 20 yards from each other but pretend the place is full, but we're not going to get that. No, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm actually going backwards with the amount of attention I pay. Mm. My, my partner is a, an essential worker, and we'd gotten to a point where we had dispensed with a sort of um, decontamination regime for when he gets back home, sort of clothes and mask in the washing machine shower before we cuddle hello. 
we just talked about going back to it because there's so much of it around, even though yeah, we're yeah. both double-vaxxed. Yeah. Well, the, the, the problem is, is what you're allowed to do and what you feel allowed to do. So if someone says it's back to normal, but you don't feel normal, and I'm somebody that in term, when it comes to sort of having fun, I need to feel very kind of safe, yeah, sort of free. Saying, like I sort of like literally at a festival, like I couldn't, you know, if, if I really needed to go to the loo, I could not enjoy a band. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Even something yeah. as sort of, if I felt too trapped in, do you know? What I mean? But one no, thing, I understand. when I, I understand. felt relaxed, yeah. th- that's, that's brilliant. That's sort of when, when, when I can feel sort of hedonistic. So the idea of going to a club or a bar constantly thinking if you are that way inclined constantly thinking oh shit and noticing other people and noticing other people you know constantly it's like i don't i personally would not be capable of having fun much the way i would want to and let alone what Roz is saying about therefore if you live with other people yeah and and the (laughs) The idea that you could pay for the whole family pays with you for your night out for 10 days and yeah and that's the problem with the whole freedom day concept and there's also a pavlovian response isn't it because this isn't the first time we've relaxed lockdown this is now the fourth time i think Mm. we've relaxed lockdown and every time before that it's gone horrifically wrong because the government either misread the data or ignored the data. And so we mustn't ignore the fact that there's part of our insides conditioned to expect this to go horribly wrong. I fully do. I hope it doesn't, Mm. but... Well, let's talk about the politics quickly. Uh, The FT, Sebastian Payne, uh, writes that Tory backbenchers are, are so restive on this issue that the government wouldn't be able to extend restrictions without Labour support and they would rather die or let other people die than rely on Labour support. But he also points out the same applies in spades to another lockdown mm. if that proves necessary. So, because that's the whole thing. If, but if by allowing this huge unlocking now, you lead to a lockdown later. Is, so therefore, is this a massive political gamble as well as a health one? I think it's a huge political gamble and... I think it's when schools go back that we will see whether they have cocked this up or whether it will pay off. Because I think if September comes and kids cannot get back to school normally, if we end up with, uh, like today, one in ten kids basically being sent home to isolate, I think that there will be a sort of parents' revolt in this country, because it will now be coming up to mm. sort of a year and a half. And, and the third academic this. year yeah. that will have been affected. Well, the and, plan is to, is to get rid of bubbles, of course. That yeah. is what, uh, after, after but, 19th of June. You know, but if numbers are crazy, and by then we know that, you know, one in 50 kids that contracts the virus gets long COVID symptoms, what happens then? And so that's what I mean. Yeah. They have effectively said to themselves, we have to bite the bullet to see whether the vaccine works or not. That's what they're doing. That's the gamble. They're going, we have to bite the bullet to see whether we're going to create new variants. But there's a world outside, you know, both Westminster and the UK. Europeans at the moment, this is the second variant that they've been plagued by mm. that they see the UK as the country that introduced it. So do, so is there going to be, do you think there's going to be a problem where actually where, where the, it's not just what happens here, it's what the rest of Europe makes of us. And if we if they see us as the, as the Europe's leading exploiter of the plague, that they're just going to, they're going to impose their own travel restrictions. I think yeah. there is a scenario where because of the vaccine and the prevalence of infection in the UK, it creates another uh, variant, a third one associated with the UK effectively, that is quite vaccine resistant. And I think that would be a catastrophic scenario, not only for this country, but for this country standing in the world. I think we would end up in a purple list, all of our own, sort of slightly above red where no one is allowed to even wave hello from across the channel. I should also point out that depending on where you're listening to this, that there are people like Sadiq Khan in London, Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, Andy Street, uh, Mm. West Midlands, who are sticking to face mask rules. Scotland is sticking to various other restrictions. So once again, it's the kind of 
the government says one thing, but there is a splintering of the country and a lot of people are just going, no, we're going well, to look after our people. And it's a predictable splintering and it's one that Johnson relies on. And this is why I think this is so disingenuous. Nick Robinson very astutely observed on the Today programme that the fact that lockdown restrictions are removed from law does not reduce the liability of any body or company to its employees or to the public with whom it deals. And so, of course, you can rely on public transport bosses to say, we will still insist on face masks on London Underground. So effectively, Johnson can cry freedom and say, yeah, we've unlocked it all and rely on private employers and public bodies to say, careful now. Now it's time for Overrated, Underrated, where each week we separate the deep woke from the deep broke. Roz, it's your turn. What's your pick? Oh, I'm going to talk about policy again because, you know, I love policy. Um, I'm going to talk about the 15-minute city as an idea. And this is something that is very um, very chic in Paris at the moment that you may have heard of. No, the I have not. Parisian, yeah. The Paris mayor has been promoting the idea of a 15-minute city. And the idea is that you ideally work, but you certainly eat, go to school, play, go to the park, go to your GP or whatever, within a 15-minute radius of your home. During the pandemic, there have been plenty of suburbs in London, but also in other big cities, Manchester, Birmingham, that have kind of kept themselves going and thrived while the centre of the city that they live in has basically atrophied and emptied out. Those areas have prospered as people want to go to places like cafes and want to uh, enjoy the parks and so on and do things within walking distance. So you've got, uh, you know, this 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 idea that, uh, and of course it's become more popular during the pandemic. Uh, urban thinkers have been saying, oh, you know, this shows because, because some suburbs in London especially have, have thrived during the pandemic and uh, cafes and so on have mm. sprung up and things have kept going because people wanted to go to things that were within walking distance and meant they didn't have to get on public transport, get in a car. So this whole idea has become quite, you know, hip and, and also the fact it's happening in Paris makes it seem particularly alluring. <laughs> but I was, I was at an LSE event um, recently that actually changed my thinking about it. And there was an economist, very clever man called Ed Glazer at Harvard, who was uh, who was saying how much he hated this idea, how much he opposed the idea of a 15-minute city. And his argument was that the 15-minute city is for the rich. It's for people who are happy in their little suburb and they don't really want to move around and they don't need, most importantly, mm. to move around because they can work from home because they work in the types mm. of jobs where you can work from home. They're not the kind of people who have to travel a long way to work. And that the, fundamentally, the reason that people come to cities is to better themselves. And so, you know, they live maybe a long way from their work. And they need to get there and then gradually, you know, they, ideally they work their way up and they acquire more more uh, autonomy and that saying everything should happen within 15 minutes and you should be working within 15 minutes of where you live is not the right concept for a city at all. And it, but in particular for children and underprivileged children especially, it almost creates ghettos where they don't see other parts of the city they live in. So that was quite a challenge to my kind of automatic, oh, 15 minutes, lovely. I think it's one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. (laughs) What is the point of living in a city if you're only going to live in a certain bit of it? Essentially turning a city, you're part of the city, into like a village. Like what, what? Why? 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 Why would you do that? So what? Exactly. I mean, when you think about why, 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 why? Even if it's sexy and Parisian. Well, I'm you not. know, metropolitan sophisticated that you are, Dorian. But you know, there's plenty of people who live in Zone Three, Zone Four, Zone Five who actually don't go into Central London very much, especially now anymore. And that it has an appeal, and also, you know, cuts cuts emissions, all this kind of thing. So, so what's your uh, underrated then? Well, the whole city idea is underrated. Yes. So the idea that you live in a city, you can go into the centre, you have good public transport to get you there, and that you can enjoy everything that the city offers rather than being trapped in your little neighbourhood. Well, that's it, because I've always find when people don't want to enjoy the whole city, that's when they move out. Because they don't want to go and see, like, they don't want to go to the South Bank, and they don't want to go to Leicester Square, and they don't want to go to Portobello Road, and they don't want to go to Brixton, and they don't want to go to the theatre and enjoy all the kind of brilliant things of London. And so it's like, well, you might as well move out. Mm. 
if you if you're gonna if you're gonna have a 15 minute city, it's just like well the city's wasted on you. Get out of the way. <laughs> so well done, Ed, Ed Glazer. Now it's time for But Your Emails. Uh, I just read an article in the New York Times that email causes social anxiety for Generation Z. One student said, every time I get an email, it's like being stabbed. But we're old, so we love them. Keep them coming. Uh, Graham says, people who work in the House of Commons will still be required by their employers to wear masks after July 19th. But apparently MPs themselves won't because they are not classed as employees of the House of Commons. Apart from the terrible optics and the opportunities for grandstanding for MPs, does this show that we should treat MPs as employees of the people. Would it change how MPs behave to remind them that they work for us? Naomi. Uh, well, I think we should do one better. Um, the Romans used to have a day where the noblemen had to wait on their servants. Um, so I would maybe like to see something similar where once a month the MP has to mask up, answer the phones at the constituency office or in the parliamentary office and let the work experience interns plot the next stage of unlocking. Because let's face it, they probably can't do any worse than the government. Uh, and it's probably either that or some kind of shock pads on the benches of Westminster operated by an online Twitter poll um, as a reminder not to get too comfy or too close to each other. I think it's it's quite indicative that a mask protects the other person rather than you. And so the staff wearing masks are, is protecting the MPs, but the MPs not wearing masks is not protecting the staff at the House of Commons. It looks utterly app appalling because, you know, there is no way yeah. they're not employed unless you make them employees of the of the company. I or agree. In such you, an open you, goal... You, you can't force them to, but my God, such an open goal bad. for opposition parties, all they have to do is wear a mask and they look like bloody saints. Well, it was like uh, Joe Biden's incredibly cool mask during the election yeah. campaign. Yeah. It became... A, a sort of mar a symbol of his sort of responsibility versus Trump's recklessness. So if I was uh, if I was a Labour MP, I would be just wearing masks all over the shop. That's the show. Thanks to my triple masked colleagues, Roz. Thank you, Naomi. Bye, everyone. And Alex. Thank you for having me. This week, as a nation looks back to the glory days of 1966, yet again we're talking nostalgia on the extra bit for Patreon backers. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, "Demon Is a Monster" by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello and thanks from me to Keith Kelly, Anne Jeremy, Rosie Wilkinson, Jamie Nazareth and Mattia Cruz. From me it's hello to Celine Mimun, Esther Carr, Samochan, Robert Dickinson and Henry Cote. Many thanks from me to Oshan George, Clive Hill, Ian Webster, Jakub Stwarkowski and Katie O. And finally, thanks for me to Matt Holland, Alison Fitzgerald, Adrian Oldman, David Knowles and Andrew Johnston. Take care and see you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Doreen Linsky with Alexandreou, Naomi Smith and Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusive to Patreon backers. This week, we're talking about the psychology of nostalgia. England's first men's football tournament final in 55 years brought back talk of good old 1966, the year of the World Cup victory, the Beatles' revolver, swinging London and Harold Wilson's landslide victory. And the jailing of the Moors murderers. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> and Aberfan as well. And Aberfan. Yeah. Yes. So, a mixed bag. Is the golden year always a myth and who's writing it? And is there something about the pandemic that makes nostalgia glow brighter? Roz, have you felt more nostalgic this past year or so? And if so, what is your historical safe space? I hate feeling nostalgic. I remember saying this <laughs> at a Patreon event once. I bloody hate it. It is the most pointless, unproductive emotion that there is. And it, every time I feel it, I feel, oh my God, I really am hissing, you know, late middle age. So I try, I fight all that I can against nostalgia because <laughs> I 
do not, you know, it is, it is a lovely place to wallow and then you end up just despising yourself, in my experience. But in terms of what... so British. Yeah. No, this, this, is, great. This, this emotion does not produce anything. I would say it's, I'd say it's, I'd it say it's super futurist. You sound like yeah, David no. Bowie being interviewed in the 70s or something. It's very I, exciting. Yeah, well, Why if, is if your face wet? If you're a progressive, and I don't really like the word, but if you're a progressive, then I'm sorry, but you have got have, can have no space for nostalgia. It's, it's a conservative emotion. 90, but if we're talking about which um, year is kind of... And it's strange because I was thinking about this. 1996 was probably a highlight because, oh God, it's just... So for half of 1996, I lived in Paris. I was a student there. So that was pretty cool. I didn't actually study much. I had this kind of moonlighting gig at uh, Time Out Paris. So I kept getting all these tickets to stuff and I would just... It was it was insane. It was great. Then I came back from Paris and I was very lucky and I won a competition at The Guardian, actually, to go and review plays at the uh, student plays at the Edinburgh Festival. So I had a really good time there as well. It was just great. I was living the dream. But, you know, I was I was very unhappy. I was full of self-doubt. I was miserable. I did, I, I did not, you know, my, my primary emotions were not happiness, were not contentment in any way. But the fact that, that, that I'd experienced all these different things that year made it seem, in retrospect, very exciting. Contentment is a very unproductive emotion. Why would you want it? Rubbish. It enables me to get work done. And that was a trailer for the Extra Time edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like to hear more, and why would you not? Every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast, and we'll love you. Thanks for listening. See you next week.